Hi guys, this is just a quick one uh, before the podcast begins. As you all know, we've recently launched our whole platform and I'm really delighted to announce that some of you have been really generous and donated some money um, to our Patreon. Uh, and this is your shout out um, and a special thanks from me to you. So that's Jill Worrell, Sarah Worrell, uh, Alex Purvis, Alex Doan, and James Hodson. We thank you so much for your contribution. It is incredibly generous and it allows us to um, cover our costs, make really nice content and try and get people's voices and ideas heard in a way that is non-partisan um, and, and fair really. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, hopefully we'll be able to see each other at some point soon uh, after all this COVID is done with. And to anyone who is interested in uh, donating money or even donating time please visit www.theconversationallemon.com and you can either go to the get involved part of the page where you can see how you can volunteer or write for us or create content for us or if you scroll all the way down to the bottom there should be a patreon logo that you can click that will take you straight to the patreon and then you know that it would be really nice if you could donate money to us we accept anything from one pound a month all the way up to 25 pounds a month and with each increase uh, you will get extra content that we can offer you including exclusive clips of this podcast and also exclusive episodes one being with mr toby young i believe so please uh contribute if you can um, and thank you to those that already have we really really appreciate it so without further ado on with the show I mean, just more broadly, I'm glad I'm not, I'm really not a fan. I think dreadful administration. I think he was handed, if you look at, I mean, a, 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 an administration which is not terribly <clears throat> um, well appreciated is the major one, but actually it's an underrated administration. They picked up the, the sort of back part of the Lawson uh, bust, you know, the recession, very deep recession. They did a lot of the hard work in, uh, fiscally in grinding that out. I uh, thought Clark was a pretty good chancellor. Um, yeah, they were at the end of, the, of their project, but it's a very, very underrated government. And then they handed over what would turn out to be a pretty good economic legacy to, to the Labour Party in 97. And Blair made some critical errors, I mean, desperate errors on, on probably on devolution, which he thought would bring the government, bring the country together. It didn't do anything of the kind. Um, it, it certainly historically, you can see that devolution has increased. It's, it's, it's paved the way to disintegration in the United Kingdom, so it didn't achieve that. His um, preoccupation with foreign wars, famously dreadful, uh, dreadful errors. Um, even the bits of public sector investment that a lot of the, a lot of the public sector investment did, they did, they couldn't be honest about. So you get PFI and you get, you know, kicking the can down the road um, yeah. on debt. So. Hello and welcome to Can I Make a Point, the podcast where we listen to ideas, guests and on some occasions even each other. In that spirit, my name is Bradley and I'm a Conservative and I'll be joined every week by my friend Danny who happens to be a Socialist. It's a potent blend, I know. Please subscribe and follow The Conversational Lemon on Twitter at TC underscore Lemon and on Instagram at The Conversational Lemon 
updates on new content. I'm just, I'm just admiring your, um, your, your, your t-shirt. Is it from Rhode Island? Nope. Next. From Next. Yes. I didn't know Next did such um, <laughs> interesting pieces. <laughs> That's what you get for three quid. So, three quid. I think it was three quid. That's I'm quite good for three quid. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Sorry, then. <laughs> that <one. laughs> but yeah. But on today's episode is William Fluston, leader of the Social Democrat Party. And in our interview, we discussed the resurgence of the SDP, what is social democracy, the European Union, and even had a discussion about lockdown. But first, I ask him who he is and what point he wants to make. Yeah, um, my name is William Cluston. I'm leader of the Social Democratic Party. Um, the SDP is uh, a unique party in British politics. It's a type of, I suppose, a red-blue blend of politics. We are patriotic uh, in the traditional sense of sort of Attlee and Peter Shaw and so on, and David Owen. And um, we uh, advocate left of centre economics, and I describe ourselves as culturally traditional. Excellent. Yeah. Um, just taking it to the SDP, the party, just for a, a quick moment. As far as I was concerned, up until very recently, um, the SDP was non had become basically non-existent after a really strong 1980s. I think you won something like 25% of the vote in 83, um, you know, with the Liberals. So I'm just wondering where that sort of resurgence has come from. That's a good question. Um, I mean, in, term, in terms of the party first, uh, it never went away. Um, the interesting thing about parties, political parties, is that they're voluntary associations and they are their members. So um, the party, you know, yeah, it was kicked to the grassroots in 1990 when David Owen left the field, but uh, it still had 12,000 12, members and it still had a lot of branches and a lot of councillors in different parts of the country. And although it went, um, below the radar really as a national party, it still exists. And the membership went down to a very uh, low level, but uh, it's, it's still there. And then a few years ago, it started growing again. So there are lots of reasons politically why it started growing. Perhaps we can go into that, but that's the basic story. Hmm. So I, I was wondering, in a world of lots of small parties, because at the moment we've also got like Reform, Lawrence Fox's party, Reclaim coming up, there's the Heritage Party and the Green Party. What hold do you think the SDP is filling that maybe those parties aren't filling in a way? Well, I try not to be too rude about uh, our competitors, but um, the, first, <laughs> the first thing I'd say, the first thing I'd say about anything new is um, a, a sort of more philosophical point, really, the Lin, uh, Lindy effect. So if something's new, it's actually unlikely to last very long. So my general view about a lot of the new parties that are setting up is that they won't last. Um, the fact that we are about to uh, celebrate our 40th anniversary should give you a clue uh, that, that if you believe in social democracy and our type of Owenite social democracy, the fact that we're still here is, is a testament to that. Um, so as I say, I don't think some of these, I mean, it's a tremendously difficult job uh, building a, a small party back up. Um, you know, we built membership up to, to the low thousands and we're very solid. The, the membership's very high quality. But that's the first thing to make, uh, the first point to make is that I don't, in a foot race, even to the next general election, which is three and a half years away, we, I know we'll be there with many, many more candidates than we had in 2019. I'm not really sure if all of the, the new party contenders will be there. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that um, 
philosophically, I don't think there's much room, frankly, for some of the variants. Uh, if you combine social conservatism with, um, broadly with Thatcherite free market purist economics or libertarian type economics, you're making not only, you're, you're, you're combining things which don't, which don't have broad appeal for a start because people have had enough of Thatcher, Thatcherite type economics, but you're also combining two things that don't actually sit very well philosophically. Um, and it's a point we can debate it in, in, in detail, but basically if you're making a philosophical error, if you think that um, you know, globalist free trade type approach to economics is compatible with social conservatism, perhaps at root actually many of the people that are uh, promoting these parties aren't actually social conservatives at all. They're free market liberals and libertarians and again, fine, promote that and see how you go, but there isn't a, a broad um, demand for that. There isn't a, a willingness, if you look at the data of what, where social attitudes are and where value divides are, there isn't actually a very broad, um, there isn't broad support for that. I'd argue that we are small, but we are sitting right on top of, of probably a majority position in the country, the sort of patriotic center left is pretty much a sweet spot. And Matt Goodwin's done a lot of work on this. If you read him regularly, you'll find that that's where it is. So um, I think the long-term prospects for a serious political project uh, like ours is very good. Yeah, I'm just wondering about that sort of, because obviously, you know, I, I think Farage has had a lot of a lot of success with that Eurosceptic, but also that more socially conservative anti-woke agenda. Um, but, you know, he very rarely actually talks about the economic elements um, of what he's trying to do. And I suppose that's where the Social Democratic Party comes in, because I've read the new declaration. And there's a lot of focus on the social market economy, which is obviously a cornerstone of the social democratic tradition. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering if you could sort of quickly just explain what the social market is um, just for the people watching. It's, it's at the same time a very simple idea and quite a complex one. And there was a running joke in the SDP in the 80s that, uh, you know, if only we understood what the social market was, we'd be sure to try and sell it, <laughs> promote it. Um, broadly, it's, 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 it's that the state and the market are not opponents. They're two sides of the same society. And unless you grasp that, you're, you're going to invite policy error. Uh, you also invite partisanship. So... It's quite a radical idea in that um, our politics isn't set up to appreciate this. Our politics, if anything, is set up to reinforce the divides in society and to pursue narrow vested interests rather than governing for the whole country. So I'll try and unpick that. Um, if you, I mean, I, I, you know, if you elect the Labour Party, you will get a pro-state party and every single Labour government spends uh, usually in the end a little bit more money than we can afford uh, in, in particular looks after uh, public sector uh, wages. That's basically what New Labour did. One of their biggest failings was to boost public sector salaries and positions and, 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 and wages, but that didn't increase public, public sector productivity. Uh, and yet New Labour was too timid to do some proper social market uh, work in, in nationalizing railways or, or doing anything serious on housing or industrial policy. So they, they basically drunk the Thatcherite Kool-Aid uh, were neoliberals, dreadful word, but they were. And they did a little bit of redistribution. They did a little bit of feather bedding of their own voter base. But nevertheless, that you still had that uh, partisanship, that vested interest um, 
basis uh, to politics in, in their administration. Likewise, the Conservatives largely, uh, um, you know, uh, govern in the interest of the private sector. And I know it's that, that claim is, uh, has been hard to, to sustain recently, you know, given Brexit, because there's been quite a lot of turbulence. And you've got Boris Johnson saying nasty things about the market quite famously. Or business, but but broadly speaking, that's what their interest group is. So from the very start, if you believe in vested interest type politics, and we don't, then you're setting up with uh, a government, whether it's red or blue, to govern not for the whole country, but for their vested interest, for their particular part. And I think that's a mistake. And I think all the successful societies, if you look around the globe, uh, are ones that combine this um, this this uh, pro market pro-proper market, by the way, we want competition. Uh, and we're strongly against monopoly and uh, oligopoly power. And you can see that in big tech now, it's getting out of control. There's been a general uh, tendency for, in virtually every market we have for fewer but larger operators, more powerful operators. So we need to look at competition rules, seriously. If you're pro-market, you have to do that. But at the same time, you've got to be pro-state. The state has to do the heavy lifting on a lot of, in many, many categories, and I, I do despair, even quite intelligent conservatives don't get this and they, they seek power. And when they get uh, into office, uh, their attitude is, well, we don't want to do anything with it. And they don't want to do anything because they don't believe in it because they want the smallest state they can get away with. So that's where we are. And I, I think, you know, we are a sensible, considered uh, alternative to that. But I'm not, you know, I would never say what we're promoting isn't slightly paradoxical to many and, and a little bit revolutionary because the idea that you should govern for the whole is, 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 is quite revolutionary. A lot of people, you know, have vested interests in their politics and fine if that's the sort of thing you want, but it will fail. And the successful societies don't do it that way. You know, probably the most successful society, I know it's, it's not perfect, but the most successfully governed society in terms of um, delivering outcomes in education and health and you know other outcomes is Singapore. Now that is a social market model. It's it's absolutely a social market model. The bits of the market are very very free market, but the, the state is very very involved. Uh, it's involved to a far greater extent than many of the conservatives that pro profess to want a Singapore on terms type of approach realise. They don't they don't know anything about that society, but. Transport, housing, healthcare—very, very state, um, you know, high, high level of state involvement there. So, as I say, that's it. It's, it's, it is. It's simple in a way, but there's a lot to it. There's a lot to the social market, and to most people, um, certainly most politicos and political partisans, it, you know, they're. It's a new idea, funnily enough, to, to, and it's a new idea in terms of how they think about it. So, um, we think we're right about that. It's one of the things that that go back goes back all the way. And we're still we're still making the point. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You mentioned Singapore. I'm a huge fan of how Singapore does it more that. And I think you've already answered this and you mentioned it on that. You when you did your interview with trigonometry, you said the party is not really a place for free market liberals. So I'm going to turn that on its head because I think you might be a bit confused about my positions because I would consider myself a pro-life social conservative free marketeer and so I can justify all that I don't think there is much I think I would agree that Thatcher's kind of 
market policy was very, I wouldn't consider myself a neoliberal because I don't see defending the market at all costs. But would there be in the party a place for someone who does take that free market pro-life social conservative position? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we're not a, a tiny church. You can, you can always, I mean, I always say to people, if you want to join us, read the new deck. And if you, if you like it, join us. And if you don't, you don't. It, it really is as simple as that. But no one believes in 100% of it. Uh, you know, I wrote it and I would say 98% probably. <laughs> you know, so I, don't, I don't think, I think, uh, you know, you'd have to argue a case, but the point, let's, let's get into it. I mean, what does, what does to be a market liberal mean? If it means yeah. that you're committed to the rather utopian idea that we should have a global free market and that, that basically in the sort of Ricardian sense, every single bit of production goes to the, the highest efficiency, uh, then I'm, I'd part company because what that will end up in is a terrible um, series of, of double binds, triple binds, where, you know, if, if, the, if the most efficient price for the production of shoes is, is a factory in Shenzhen, which, you know, hot bedding and near slave labor conditions and high suicide rates. And by the way, which, because of the, this process, of, of ever larger but smaller number of units, um, you know, could, could do 10, 15% of the global production in certain categories. That is not in, in our interest to do that. So I would, I would, you know, almost controversially recently with the trade talks with the EU, I, I argued um, in, in some journalism and during interviews that we, we didn't actually want a trade deal uh, which seemed like, but and the problem, the problem is that that it that it's it's again it sounds wildly paradoxical because um, everyone you know the standard of journalism has been so poor since the twenty sixteen vote that everyone takes takes it as a, a an assumption that you need you, you will have a trade deal and you want one. The same with the states. I mean, we've got a it's not huge, but it's quite a substantial trade surplus for the Americans now on the existing arrangements, and I. I wouldn't rush into a, a, a free trade deal, um, and you shouldn't if you want if you wanted to retain some of your agriculture. You just wouldn't anyway. Uh, and I I would say, you know, we've been very very indifferent to the, the 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 market liberal when you discuss trade international trade with them will always say it doesn't matter your your trade deficit doesn't matter. Mm. And, and, I, and I suppose that links really nicely with sort of like the globalization element of the free trade with the EU, which is on the left, you know, from the perspective of the left, there's often a conflation between internationalism and the globalization, you know, the, the free trade elements of globalization, and the neoliberal yeah. nature of it. And I'm just wondering how you contend with that, because in the new declaration, you sort of say, well, we're an internationalist party, but we're Eurosceptics as well. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a fair point. You could say there's a tension between those two things, but it's it's a question of how internationalist. I mean, when we, in the Constitution, in the New Deck, when we talk about internationalism, it's really uh, the, the foundation for that is nationalism, is your nation state, which is the only vehicle for democracy, in my view. So really, it's really a criticism first of what's in front of us in Europe, which is a supranational structure where, you know, the majority of citizens of Europe can't just as a matter of fact, and you can't dispute this, you can't remove the highest executive you have. <laughs> that's not, I'm just going to give you a clue. That's not a brilliant position to be in if you're a Democrat. So if you accept that 
that nation states have the right to govern themselves, then certainly nation states have the right to, to decide not to partake in certain elements of trade if they want to have a more protectionist uh, approach. And again, there's this, it's, it's, it's almost a religious thing with the free traders that you, that you, that you discuss uh, these things with. Um, you know, that, that free trade is, is always in every single situation good. And, and I've, I've tried to explain that a lot of the value divides and a lot of the problems, you know, lack of social solidarity in the United States that, that we're getting here um, is caused by a particular approach to economics, which has gutted the factories and, 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 and the gutting of the factories has been, it ends up being a strategic uh, folly because you, then a pandemic comes along and you find you're inept and you're begging for, for kit and you, you you lack the capacity to make anything. So if that's, you know, if that's, if you have a, a purist approach to, to international trade, then that's where you are. But, you know, again, I've, I've, I've sort of pointed out that there's a mathematics to it and the, the actual base mathematics, the mathematical identity, which is that if you, um, if you have a, a deficit, uh, you know, you've got to pay for it somehow and, and it's either paid for, you can pay for your imports by what you produce now uh, in the case of exports and nets out, or you could um, issue debt, which we're quite good at doing. Uh, but that's a, that's, a paper, that's a paper promise. That's a paper promise which has to be redeemed some sometime. Or you could sell something that you own now or you've made now, which is past production, and, and that is passed off by the uh, the conservatives by by calling it you know um, FDI, you know, and foreign direct investment. A lot of foreign direct investment is just literally selling off. Um, your your assets to pay for imports. In the long run, in the long run, if you do that enough, you just end up being poorer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, trade surpluses, trade deficit does matter. And again, it's bound up by so many of the idealistic ideas about international trade, which, you know, have been quite hard to argue against, but we, you know, we think we're, we're right on this. And I know it's a, you know, it's a, it's a minority view in economics, but about 12, 15% of economists are, are with us on this and make the point. I do, I do think you're right. As a, what, I, I, what I would call myself is a sometimes free trader because I, for me, I think you're spot on. I, I'm an uncomfortable member of the Tory party and that's because of Boris, Brexit and kind of being that. But in many ways, when I read your new declaration, I find myself going, I'm more in line with what you're saying than what the Tory party says. And what I'm interested in is... What worries me, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, is there doesn't seem to be a party of fiscal fiscal conservatism, so fiscal responsibility, because I think a lot of people, it's an idea that's come from fringe elements of the left and Marxist economics, of deficits don't matter. Mm. I was wondering where the party is on like fiscal conservatism and like... Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you've asked that. We, we are fiscally sensible, I like to use that's the term I use. I, I, I don't believe in piling on, you know, debt. I don't believe in irresponsibility. We're fully aware that certainly in the public sector, um, uh, just showering the public sector with, with increased resources does not, you get to diminishing returns almost immediately, actually, particularly in the public sector. You don't get a huge amount out, more out if you, if you increase spending vastly. Largely, the increases in expenditure that have taken place in, with recent governments, you're slightly pushing on a string there. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's still very vast waste 
in the public sector, you know, and, and, and also um, a tendency recently to make appointments and to prioritize things politically. So, you know, it's, it, people joke about it, but you're, you know, your diversity, head of diversity at 65,000 pounds in, in quite small health trusts and the teams that they have, that's, that's verging on disgraceful because, you know, healthcare is about the front end, not about that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you've got to, in our version of social democracy, is what you do is the important thing and, and being, in the, being in the business. So I, I think we've, we've never argued that, you know, you, you, just, you just, you know, shell out money here, there and everywhere. It's more a question of what we do and how long we take to do it. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the basic uh, platform we have on even on something like housing. And the Labour Party's program is twice as big as ours, to be fair, it's probably a little bit too small, but it wasn't expensive. I mean, we costed it, you know, seven or eight billion a year to house a million people in 10 years. It was too modest. We're going to go bigger than that, but it's still very, very modest. And um, as I say, I don't, I don't believe, it, you know, it can't be um, responsible. Uh, it can't even be social Democrat to, 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 to be irresponsible and to, to load um, debts and obligations on onto your children and grandchildren. And if you do that, you better be hope, you've got to hope that your 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 grandchildren and children are big on forgiveness because um, <laughs> that's that's the thing. But you know, I mean, I take on the sort of market side. I take I take all of your points. I take and I make the point that you know, for for most goods and services and general services in the economy, the most efficient point of use is the market. No doubt about it. So yeah. you know, it is a balance. Um, I'm just wondering what the relationship is between the market and, and, and the state, though, because, I mean, the way it's currently constituted is it's very much uh, an antagonistic one. There's no sort of unison or, 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 you know, working off one another to try and produce the best outcomes. But um, from what I read in the new declaration, it's you see it in a very different way. You see them as inhabiting very different um sort of from you know different domains in a sense you know domains, yeah. but but you know it's sort of working together for a common for a common goal i mean exactly you know, yeah. it, i don't see any other party offering anything like that no because they don't as i say they the other i mean leave the De liberal democrats aside they <laughs> doesn't everyone serious trouble it is not the you know the, the 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 real the origins of their trouble are that they believe three different things that are mm. incompatible and can't be synthesized. So they, you know, they, you know, they they'll they won't go. I mean, just like the SDP, they won't go. They'll still be hanging around and they still have quite a few members. But but you know, they uh, philosophically they're cooked, absolutely cooked as a unit. I mean, they, they well, I mean, they're latching onto this Blairite notion that has clearly died out a long time ago. You know this. Social liberal, socially liberal economics sort of agenda. It's 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 as I say. It's uh, I, you know I had a little letter in the Specky on Christmas, and I, I pointed out the the three things. You know there are some social democrats, there's some you know Gladstonian free trade liberals, you know uh, JS Mill type liberals, fine. But there there are more in the Tory party than the Liberal party, and the woke, the, the you know the wokeists, they should join the Labour party. There's no difference between woke Lib Dems and Labour. Mm. Um, unless for some reason you don't like the the, the colour of the, I don't know why I don't know why they don't just join them. But, and then there are some social democrats, and they should come home to us. But so yeah, I mean they they have particular problems. But yeah, the the the, the big duopoly parties are incapable of of looking at the whole because they are just just vest, they're just vested interest parties, and 
you know, we, the question always was, is, you know, do, do, do the public have an appetite for a, for a party that can see across it all? Uh, you know, and uh, we think, I, I think they do, if they, if we give them the chance, I mean, we, we're massive hurdles with the, with the burning system and so on, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, philosophically it's right, and a point I try to make on this quite a lot is that um, it's also the way people live their lives, it's the way families work, families don't very often have, you know, mum in the, in, the, in the private sector, dad in the public sector, or vice versa, and the, 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 the system works as a whole, you know, you, 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 that family, if they if they vote Labour or Conservative, they're actually sawing off the branch of one of their trees that they're sitting on. You know, mm. they, they, it doesn't help. You better govern um, if you if you if you if you didn't govern like that. And also, you'd have much more. I mean, a main criticism that we have of the way we're governed is that there's very very little long term planning. And one of the reasons for that is that the the parties have you know let's let's feather our nests as much as we can. Mm. And, and, and move the frontier towards us and then it swings back but you've got no policy stability there you've got no long-term planning and mm. lack of planning i mean it is again to use that word it's a word we're happy to use planning but you know you, you have to admit on the conservative <laughs> side there's a little bit of a problem with yeah. that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. and i and, and there shouldn't be because you know all successful societies if you're well governed you've, you've got a plan you know you know what you're trying to do i'm gonna Daniel's going to get annoyed at this, but I'm going to pinch a question me and Daniel spoke about. You mentioned about nationalisation. Would there be any form, because obviously I'm very wary of this, I think the answer is to break up centralised banks and localise them, but what would you do with banks? Would you keep banks in the private market, or do you think that the state should fully take over the banks and nationalise them? Uh, in a sense, the state already has done that, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> so Q4 of 08, that, that pretty much happened uh, in relation to the big ones. I mean, it was only Barclays that got away, didn't they? Because they got some money from the Middle East. But basically, the others were nationalised effectively. And um, and I think the state still has large <clears throat> um, stakes in in, um, in Lloyd, certainly. And, and I think still has something in NatWest as well. Um, so yeah, I mean uh, the ba- the the banks. It's a whole different issue. Um, the broad problem is that they haven't been able to alloc- allocate capital very well. It's been a perennial problem. Uh, their loan books uh, have a tendency to go bad, and when they go bad, the state has to to come in and, and bail them out. And usually, the the sort of sort the prime sort of locus of of what's gone bad is is property of some sort. You, quite often, commercial property. I think the last. In, in 08, um, the combined loan books of the British banks to commercial property was something like 270 billion. Uh, 70% of it was underwater. So it was, you know, they'd made terrible, terrible errors and the, the public sector came in. But I, I totally take your point about there being too many banks. Uh, you know, they talk about the big four, but, you know, four isn't really sufficient. And um, the sad thing about what happened to banking generally in the UK is that we had a lot of very good regional banks and even city banks. Uh, but you got you got what I mentioned before, this process in a market that's allowed to do it of, of, of getting uh, fewer number but larger operators. So, you know, a lot of the, the classic case was the Northern Rock, which used to be the Rock Building Society in Newcastle. Then it merged with the, with the Northern entity, I can't remember what it was called became the Northern Rock and then it and it demutualizes, becomes a bank, then it gets itself into, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the the 
got itself into the wholesale funds markets because the model previous to that was you collect deposits from your members and you lend your members money to buy houses. That's sort it's like a sort of mutual, old fashioned mutual, you know. And then they get into uh, wholesale funds and there's, there's, globally they, there's been a glut of wholesale funds flowing in from one market to another. And uh, they find it's easier to borrow those than to get deposits and relend those. And then they give people, you know, 130% mortgages and we just get into problems and it goes wrong. But actually for society, it would have been far better and more robust for us somehow to keep a structure where you have lots and lots of small uh, regional banks and people talk about, uh, you know, the, in Germany, the Germans do a lot of things very well. And certainly the Sparkasse, which is the, the smaller regional banks, they're not all, all, some of those aren't very good, actually. I mean, I sort of, when people use that as an example, I always think, well, I, I, I sort of agree with the structure, but not the actual bank. Because if you speak yeah. to people that know about banks, they'll they'll tell you that the Sparkasse aren't too good. But, but what you want is a, is a banking system that's closer to people and that has more um, resistance to shocks, in other words, more anti-fragile, you know, because uh, the banking system is very fragile. So you want better, you want more banks, you want them better capitalized. And um, and uh, and that's the solution. Quite how you get there is, is, a, is a longer um, and probably more difficult question. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've seen in other interviews that you've done you, you talk a lot about evidence-based governance, particularly more recently with the whole, you know, COVID-19 and lockdowns. And I'm just wondering if you think there's any evidence for lockdowns, um, you know, because obviously one of the big things that I have a frustration with government, I'm broadly sympathetic to lockdowns, but one of the frustrations I have with government is there's not a, there's not a, a cost-benefit analysis in my view not nothing that's quantified the differences if you if you get my drift so i'm wondering where you stand on all of that uh great question um i'm glad this is a long form interview because um <laughs> it's gonna need it uh, so yeah i mean i think you have to be cautious the the first thing i'd say about lockdowns is that like a lot of public policy the idea that you can have uh, a, a form of public policy, a, a reaction to, to pandemia or whatever, and assume that the um, efficacy or the, the, the results will be similar across different geographical cultural domains. I just want to nail that first. It can't be. So um, the problem with lockdowns is that you, you know, you could, you could have, a, you could have a policy of a lockdown in a Southeast Asian state and you might get really quite, quite decent results. Mm. And there might be um, there might be cultural reasons for that. There might be you know structure of housing, household structure, family structure. There might be a lot of reasons for it. Um, and you might get great results, and it might reduce the, um, the the viral spread, and you might get your R rate down, and all the rest of it. And then you might approach the lockdown in a different society, a more sort of laissez-faire society, like you know in the states. And you might not have the same results. So the first point about about lockdowns to be made in a long form interview is that there isn't you, you, you can't really your 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 approach to them has to be evidence based on your own society. So there isn't a there are some quite decent meta studies that you can read. Uh, Frontiers in Public Health published one I think it was the start of December last year, which is a decent I like meta studies because. 
uh, if you can disaggregate data and you've got lots of data sets across the whole world, you can get a glimpse of what, what it might look like. And they, their view was that actually in the rank order of, of um, causality to death rates, which is after all, that's the terminus position. That's the thing you're interested in. Um, in the rank order, uh, lockdowns were, were not proven in the meta study. I think it was 62 different uh, societies they looked at. Um, they, they, they didn't prove that they were effective. In other words, they, they weren't, there wasn't a strong causal link to death rate. Mm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering where you go from with that. So what would be the alternative then? Because obviously, you know, I, I personally favor an evidence-based approach, you know, and if the evidence is sort of suggesting that they're ineffectual, well, what's, what's the alternative? Well, just to, just to, before I get there, just to say, um, on the on the on the second point, which you prefaced in the question, mm. you, you 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 complained about the lack of um, of a of a of a published or it, it's, I I don't actually think they've even tried to do a, a cost benefit analysis on mm. on the other side of the tennis net on the costs the cost of the suppression measures, um, and I I. I I published a piece at the start in April. It was written in right at the start in in March, but I couldn't get uh, couldn't get anyone to take it actually. <laughs> Probably a bit controversial, but they. But I said, you know, the the, the lockdowns were, were a tragic necessity, and I said it was a tragic necessity because I I think, not given the fact that given the structure of our press and the political situation, I don't believe any I don't believe any political class would have resisted it. But I made a separate point that, despite the fact that the and, and in a way I wasn't I, I acknowledged I mean I wasn't criticized I wasn't I wasn't having a pop at the government I just don't think they could have resisted it if their expert if their medical expert um, in the nerve tag and sage said lockdown they would lock down the the the, the gap in public policy is that the there was no economist in the room or there was no super forecaster in the room or there was no quant in the room that could look at um, <clears throat> that could look at um, the cost of the suppression measures and aggregate them up and then put it in a time series and, and, and do some projections, which is hard to do, but it, you know, it could have been done. And I, my feeling is that had they done that, they would get, even on some of the, their own metrics, like quality, like quality adjusted life years, they would, they'd probably end up with a negative. Yeah. Mm. So we're in this odd situation where, you know, publicly, you, you know, you've got this, the, you know, the situation where you know there's a pandemic, it's new, it's a crisis, and the government does something you believe is probably wrong. And for us, it was just a question of could we be honest about it, you know? And we we decided to be honest about it, so we published some stuff, and so we were slightly skeptical. So what you the next thing is what we what we should have done or could have done. We supported the first lockdown, and and after the first lockdown, there was enough evidence on clusters of uh, death rates on the you know you've got a broad. Uh, in, infection fatality rate, which ended up being a little bit lower than Ferguson said it would have been. He was talking, you know, about sort of about one percent sometimes, um, and it's lower than that. But it also is very, very concentrated in certain age groups and with comorbidities. So after you had that by April, May, then your strategy should be, I think, to leave society as open as it can be. School, I mean, talking schools, firms, uh, commerce. Uh, uh, you know, you've got to be careful with travel, but you, you've got to keep your basic local community open and just concentrate on 
on um, protection, really, really rigorous protection of those in the age groups and with the concerns that, you know, the vulnerable. So, I, I mean, it's not, it sounds a trite thing and it wouldn't be easy. I'm not saying, I mean, across the West, you know, no, no government's done particularly well. And the societies that have done well, like Germany, I think have, well, have done well by accident. And I, I think that'll be proved later. I think they receded uh, from fewer places. <laughs> um, and I think, I think the, this society that receded from three places, you know, Italy and France and Spain simultaneously, and, you know, there was obviously some from Southeast Asia and, you know, you, just, you only have to look at flight radar <laughs> to see how difficult it was once we'd been seeded, you were in real trouble. So, I mean, that's broadly my view. And I, I you know, it's been, it's been hard. I mean, I'm not, I think doing live interviews on this is, is, is not easy because it's quite a, you know, if you're on talk radio, they'll want you to, to take a more, slightly more um, definitive sort of, position. Yeah, and, and I try, and I always try, and, and they're quite, they're not five minutes interviews, which is lucky. But you know, I'm not. I think, uh, I, you know, I, I just I just think, and also the other thing is, as as the second wave, I put, I worried that the second wave would be bigger, um, because simply because of the seasonality and the timing. Because if it was still there and thousands of people still had it, the logic was if it, if you know, remember in pandemia at some stage the society had one case mm. and then it had a few and then it goes and then you know millions of people get it um if that was the case at the end of the summer then because the because the, the the length of the curve on the seasonality from you know from october through to april then it's quite it was always quite likely that you know, the aggregate number underneath the, the line would be greater than the first wave, which we were very lucky in a way started and, and you know, peaked on the 8th of April. Uh, you know, and then you're already getting into May and you're into seasonality. Yeah, so um, that's where we are. I mean, I'm, I don't want to hammer it, but I, I just think, you know, we we had a, a duty to sort of tell the truth about what we thought without being crazy. And I, and again, I'm, I think, you know, um, anti you know, anti-vaxxers and sort of um, some of the more libertarian uh, elements in, in the debate have not been helpful. And I, I tried to differentiate our approach mm. to the libertarian thing, but I put a piece in Spiked uh, just to make that point because it, we weren't, we, you know, I'm not saying liberty is not very important. It is very important, but if, if the suppression measures were, um, were, um, were were transitory, then I was prepared. I mean, you're prepared to to have a transitory, have a temporary curtailment of freedoms. I can see that. That's not a problem. But the sort of the libertarian purist doesn't see that. Uh, you know, they can't seem to see the trade-off. But I, I, my point always was and is, on a pure you, you know, J.S. Mill, Bentham, utilitarian, communitarian view. I, I'm worried about the government doing something that I believe will. In aggregate, cause more harm, and that's 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 my only point. Um, just sort of bringing it to a close. Um, where does social democracy go from here? There's obviously big big questions post COVID, not just for Britain but for the world. The rise of China, the decline of the US, Joe Biden, um, obviously becoming the president there. Um, civil liberties in this country and what we do after lockdowns where where does the social demo where does social democracies and ideology fit and where does the social democratic party go from here in terms of trying to get further on in, in the political system 
Um, on the first, the I think the future of social democracy is to forge a more um, a, a more domestically focused, communitarian, localist type of approach. So I think uh, if, if your broad view, and it's better to be broadly right than precisely wrong, if your broad view yeah. is, that, is that you've got liberal overreach, social and economic liberal overreach, last 30, 40 years, if that's your broad view, and I think, I think Gray and, uh, you know, and um, Chris Lash and the post-liberal thinkers are right about this. I think they've done the thinking. I think Morris Glassman is right about it. Now, uh, you know, and Nick Timothy, all the people in that in that hinterland are right on this. If that's right, then you just simply the future of social democracy has to be uh, a rebalancing of uh, a more domestic, local, community focus. So, in the in the sort of um, I we balance, more of we, more of us, uh, and I think a slightly warmer approach to politics. You know, we're in it together. So I think I think that will be um, the the philosophical turn, and I think the, the policy turn will have to be because of that. Um, I would argue this. I'm not sure I'm going to get it, but um, a preparedness to put up with possibly slightly lower rates of economic growth, but better, more sustainable growth. Uh, you know, some tariff barriers, a preparedness to pay for domestic production, even if occasionally it costs more because there's more broader value to it. Mm. Um, and, the, you know, there's lots of metaphors you can use, but, you know, perhaps your generation would be best producing, a, a, um, uh, looking for seeking a more slightly more traditionally based type of lifestyle, you know, literally, uh, you know, find the love of your life, settle down, uh, you know, find a quiet pub and a church, very Orwellian, actually, you know, um, in the best sense. So I think that's the future. Um, the future of the SDP, I don't know. I mean, I, what we have done is convened, uh, you know, a few thousand people who are wonderful. I think our membership is, is, is very high quality and committed. Most of us are realists. We're not uh, crazy. We realise it's going to take time and we're in it for the long term. Uh, I think we've got the politics right. I think we've got the thinking right. Uh, and I think with our foundations, I think you can you can go all the way, but I think it will take a long a long time. Mm -hmm. And the um, the model I, I suggest is the most opposite is the Green Party model, basically, which is you build your party structure up, you take time over it, and you know where you're going. So that's what we hope to do. Excellent, excellent. We we always like to finish our podcast by giving the guest a chance. If you could pick three people. Who kind of influenced your politics? Who would they be, and why? Um, the the three people uh, I, I would say I'm going to leave philosophers out. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm gonna I'm gonna have I'm gonna I'm gonna good man. <laughs> I'm gonna start I'm gonna start off with the philosopher because I think the philosopher that has influenced my my proximate thinking more than any other is John Gray, because I think if a philosopher's job is to be right and to, uh, to analyze and diagnose properly, then I think in gray, you get, you get that in spades. So you've got his basic analysis as a sort of post-liberal critic, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is um, second to none, I think. So I would I'd point anyone, the best general book you can get is Gray's Anatomy, which is obviously a pun, but it's a nice, some, it's a nice compendium of some of his writings. 
Uh, but Enlightenment's Wake is the is the book which is over twenty years old now, mm-hmm. where he just takes he takes liberalism apart, uh, the the type of liberalism that we are critical of apart, and it's well worth a look. So I'm going to say him. Um, I'm going to say uh, in politics, apart from that, a political figure Peter Shaw, uh, who's my uh, my political hero overall. I think um, again, I think Peter was right about so many things. He's right about um, the importance of state uh, and and nation. I mean, the criticism always with the Tories was that they believed in the nation but didn't believe in the, believe in the state. <laughs> and I think you need both. I, I think you really need both. I think he was um, he was uh, right about the European Union all along. Was one of the few people that could be bothered to read it and analyze it properly. And he was right in the in the in the solid tradition on the left, which is that um, you know if you're a Keynesian, you, there's no reason there's no good reason to be in the EU because it would prevent you from doing practicing the Keynesianism that you profess to believe in. Uh, it's a point that is squarely uh, not well understood on the left now, uh, but you know, much to their um, disbenefit. So Peter Shaw, uh, finally, the final person is David Owen, who as a young person, I was completely inspired by, uh, when my father left the Labour Party and I went to a few public meetings, he was the first major social democrat I saw. Um, and uh, we, you know, we we supported him. I think his approach to the social market was right. His approach on defence, which is very important in the 80s, was right. Uh, trade union reform, he was right about that. And he became right about Europe as well. Mm-hmm. So um, John Gray, Peter Shaw, David Owen. Excellent. Uh, so if people want to find out more about you and the SDP, where can they go to get the information? Um, the, the main website, we're on Twitter, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I'm a sort of intermittent tw- tweeter, but I'm on Twitter, you can find me William Cluson on Twitter, but um, go to the main site, which is stp.org.uk, and uh, a lot of a lot of information there, we've got policy and, but the best thing, honestly, the best thing to do if you're interested is, is go on that site and find your way to the new declaration and read it, and if you, if you like it, and consider joining us, and if you don't, Damn. Well, that was a good interview. Ironically, Will Inclusion is now our leader of the party we joined. Yeah, no, I think he was he was a big reason why I joined. Um, I don't know because like, and he is he's he's someone who's on top of his reading. I think you know, and and very few party leaders are like that. I mean, you look at Boris, and <laughs> he, he's clearly not read anything since Eaton. <laughs> I don't know so, where you get that apart, from, apart from Chris Chris Whitty's mind, I suppose, but indeed. <laughs> indeed well thank you for watching and listening if you like the podcast or your politics junkie or you just like my face please go and hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with new episodes this is another in a series of podcasts by the conversational lemon called can i make a point we'll be releasing new episodes every sunday morning at 10 if there's things you want us to cover or things you want us to try more of let us know in the comments or get in touch via twitter at tc underscore lemon That's all for now, but you can head on over to theconversationallemon.com for more content, or you can subscribe to our Patreon to access exclusive episodes and extra clips. But for now, it's goodbye from both Danny. Bye. And me. Bye.